Welcome to the Mind Care Podcast, where the mind, brain, and body meet. Here's your host, Glennis Bretherton. I'd like to introduce you to Dr. David Van Nuys, aka Dr. Dave from Shrink Rap Radio. Perhaps you already know him. As a lifetime learner of philosophy, psychology, and neuroscience, I fell upon Shrink Wrap Radio during one of my internet expeditions. And what a landing! Shrink Wrap Radio is a podcast of all of the above and more. The interviews are fascinating. You will become enlightened, educated, and entertained by the way in which Dr. Dave encourages the interviewees to tell their story. A story about their individual passion whether it be based on their philosophy or their perspective or someone else's, even their research. What a wonderful listen. Dr. Dave has an academic record to be appreciated. He is a psychotherapist, a clinical psychologist, a writer of research articles and a book. He has developed educational courses and his own podcast, which is Shrink Rap Radio. Now, he has interviewed over 700 podcasts. Wow, what a goldmine of information. This is a podcast that you don't want to miss. You get to go on a journey with Dr. Dave about his work, perspectives and views. We also learn some interesting things about his early years, which are quite funny and mischievous. So I really hope you enjoy the podcast. Hi, Dr. David Van Nuys. Welcome to MindCare Podcast. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm flattered. Oh, that's great. I've been looking forward to interviewing you, actually. You have an interesting career and also with Shrink Rap Radio. I find that terrific. I've been listening to that for a couple of years. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what, what we'll do, as I normally do, is start at the beginning. And okay. you'll notice that I'll sort of look to my left-hand side and um, refer to my notes because uh, sometimes I forget <laughs> what's coming hey, up next. I, I do that too. <laughs> <laughs> if we go back to the beginning, why, why, why did you choose this career path? Has it always been your career path, this type of work? To uh, be a, th- a psychotherapist, a psychologist? Yeah, yeah. Well, that came rather late, actually. Uh, Growing up, I'd never heard of a psychologist. I didn't even know anything about the profession. Um, And I was uh, in college, uh, originally accepted in electrical engineering, and then I discovered that, whoa, wait a second, (laughs) this is really hard stuff. I didn't feel like I had adequate uh, high school preparation for some of the math and science, uh, even though I got a full scholar full scholarship in engineering at the University of Pennsylvania. But I switched out into uh, creative writing for my BA. But by the time that I was about to graduate, I realized I could quickly starve to death as a writer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, as a, what's a 21-year-old writer going to do? <laughs> You know, by the time I graduate, I'd probably be about 21 and or 22. And so I just I had met a friend from high school during one of my summers back home in Los Angeles. And we got together over a beer and, you know, 
we said he asked, you know, what are you going to be doing when you graduate? I asked him, what are you going to be doing? He said, I'm going to be a clinical psychologist. I said, a clinical psychologist, what's that? He said, well, it's, it's like a psychiatrist, except you don't have to go to medical school. And I said, well, that sounds pretty good. Uh, <laughs> tell me more. And he said, well, he says, uh, I'm going to be a Rogerian. I said, a Rogerian, what is that? He said, well, it's named after this psychologist, Carl Rogers. And he has an approach where whatever the person says, you just kind of say it back to them. And I thought, well, I could do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that sounds easy. So, uh, and of course, if you really look into Rogerian psychotherapy, it's a lot more subtle than mm -hmm. that. But, but, um, but it got me on the track to thinking about that as a career that I should look into. So when I went back to University of Pennsylvania for my senior year, I started taking psychology courses and so that I could apply somewhere. So I took an abnormal psychology class and that was fascinating because I had had a, an intro psych class a couple years earlier and I didn't like it. It was all about running rats in mazes and, uh, you know, so, but hey, abnormal psychology, wow, that was interesting stuff, you know, and so, uh, so for when I, after I graduated, uh, I got a, a short, very short summer career as an advertising copywriter for a chain of department stores, putting my writing skills to work there, but I started applying to graduate schools, and uh, the only one I got into was in Montana of all places. Uh, and they had a program that I applied to because I'd gone to the library and looked at all the catalogs that they had from various schools looking for programs that I might get into with my C average at that time and, uh, and, and no major in psychology. So I found this one at, at the time it was called Montana State University and the catalog had a picture of two guys throwing an anesthetized grizzly bear into the back of a pickup truck. And so I thought, well, they'll accept me. <laughs> I think I've got a chance at this place. And so they accepted me provisionally. Uh, they said you'd have to do some more makeup work after you get here. So I did go there, and I really applied myself harder than I ever had as an undergraduate, and I got straight A's, and as a result, I, I did very well on the uh, graduate, uh, what's it called, the graduate record exam, or I think it's called, and uh, I got into the University of Michigan, which was a top-tier school mm. in, in uh, clinical psychology. Little did I know that they had a whole specialty in psychoanalytic approaches. So, uh, so I was there for six years in Ann Arbor, Michigan. That was in the middle 60s where a lot of stuff was going on. And I participated pretty fully in all that stuff. So I was lucky to graduate finally with a <laughs> PhD after six years. So that's how I got into psychology and abnormal and psychotherapy all as a result of having a beer with that friend wow the rest of history the rest yeah. is history <laughs> yeah there's a little bit more to you in fact quite a bit more to you than 
as you sort of move forward in your career, I was reading that you have, you do market research, you've yeah. you, um, uh, taught at university computer studies, uh, yeah. your writing, of, of course, and we'll get on to one book soon, which is, is pretty interesting too, yeah. some articles and also you do you have training. So, you know, your, uh, your book is full. <laughs> You know, with yeah, all these yeah. sort of things, yeah. It still is. I'm now in my 13th year of being retired, and I still can being retired from Sonoma State University, where I taught for 34 years. That's in mm. Northern California, about an hour north of San Francisco. And so I had an, an academic career, a full academic career there, teaching classes and and uh, and for the first 10 years i think i also did some private practice therapy out of my home mm. and um, and now i've been retired from all of that for 13 years but i'm still very very busy because i've got i've continued my market research work online and i've got the podcast where every week i do an interview like this yeah. and i've and i've done over 700 of those interviews of these kinds of interviews, yeah. Yeah, yeah, you several hundred. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, you're no, not in, several, 700. 700, wow. 700, I'm yeah. only up to 593, <laughs> so I've got a little bit, um, you know, that's that's the last one that I, I listened to. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You're involved with the neuropsychotherapist as well, the, the online journal. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, which is uh, out of Australia, there where you are, mm. and and um, uh, yeah, I guess I guess that uh, Matt Dolitz, the publisher of that journal, the neuropsychotherapist, had heard my show, and so he he approached me and said, uh, "Hey, uh, would you be interested in being on my board of directors?" And um, I, I wasn't willing to take that on. And I said, but I'd be happy to be kind of available in an advisory capacity. And so that was the beginning of our of our fairly fruitful relationship where we agreed to be strategic partners for each other. He was just starting out. I don't think he had even had the first issue yet. And uh, and so we just no exchange of money or anything, but we just agreed to try to help each other out in any ways that we could. And uh, so I've certainly enjoyed getting to meet him as much as I have, although never in person. I understand. Have you met him? No, I tried to nab him <laughs> with for a podcast, yeah. and he fell unwell. He had uh, neck oh, yeah. problems, so that will be. Uh, you know, I shall contact him soon. Yeah, I just thought I'd give yeah. him some space. You know, just to heal and sure. Yeah, and well, he he works really hard. I'm not surprised to hear that he's got some neck problems or something, because yeah. like me, he probably spends way too much time in front of the computer. Yeah, yeah, I'm and, hearing uh, you there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're familiar with Richard Hill. You interviewed him as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah I did because he works closely with uh, Matt on the neuropsychotherapist. And so I had seen some of his articles in that publication. And I know sometimes he's taken over the editorship too for for various issues. And, and um, it turns out that he was involved with hypnosis, which I'm not sure I fully realized that until I did the interview. 
Yeah, yeah, marrying hands, yeah. Yeah. If you don't mind, we'll come back to that. I, okay. It's just a couple of things that are, again, interesting, and I'm sure my listeners would be interested in this sort of part of your career as well because a lot of the guys are actually clinical hypnotherapists. So okay. um, a lot of my students and graduates that sort of come out yeah, of college. Yeah, of course. The, the thing is when you me- mentioned about Sonoma State University, yes, you're in, right. involved in the human potential movement and the human growth yes, I was. potential. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's, that's what know. drew me to, to, uh, to that for my first uh, full-time academic job to that campus was that they uh, they were a very young school when I went there that had only been open for maybe five or six years. And they were one of two programs in the whole country of the United States to offer a master's degree in humanistic psychology. Mm. And the other one was in West Georgia State, which also sounds unlikely, the reason why these two small colleges were doing that was that both had a, a young professor at the time who had worked in, in, in their graduate program with Abraham Maslow. Ah, so okay. he's one of the founders of the whole humanistic approach, and they were so influenced by him that they were able to exert the, the power you know, to start these programs in their mm-hmm. campuses. I don't know how it was for West Georgia State, but um, I also worked in that master's program after I was hired and uh, helped to lead it for a few years. And we were swamped with applications from all over the place from people who said, I can't imagine being in any other graduate program, Mm -hmm. humanistic psychology, the human potential movement, that's for me. And uh, boy, we had to beat them away with a stick. There are so many people who just wanted to come. They turned out to be very uh, much self-starters who you know, were going to follow their own path, their own calling. And a number went on to write books and start various kinds of programs and institutions and so on. It was something mm. during those years. Yeah, yeah really exciting. It, yeah. Is that a sign of the times, do you think? It was a sign of those times. Mm. And now, of course, the culture and the world has shifted to, unfortunately, a, a much more closed, uh, I mean, we're going to get into the political scene here, <laughs> but to a much more conservative place. Mm-hmm. And so... I think there's still a lot of students out there who hunger for that kind, for an open kind of program, and there are various kinds of online graduate programs, such as yours, really, you know, where people who have a specialized interest can get some kind of training online, perhaps. But Sonoma State, as we hired new faculty to replace ourselves, they were uh, eager to you know, we tried to say, well, here's our philosophy and we're looking to hire people who are in the same mold. Mm-hmm. Well, a number of them really wanted a job just really badly. And so they were able, they were willing to say anything. Mm-hmm. And so I would say that um, they really weren't, some of them really weren't on board with our program. So the program's really shifted. It's much more conservative than it used to be. Could you explain a little bit more about the conservatism? 
Well, uh, the times have shifted to where people are more worried about money and supporting themselves than they were in the in the early and middle 1960s. Um, you know, when, during the time of the whole hippie movement and so on, and um, and uh, political activism and so on. So there was a whole cultural rebellion in the early and middle 60s that has since kind of died down, although it may be refueling itself now because there's a large number of people in this country on the left who uh, are not happy with Donald Trump and what's going on here. And there are similar things going on in Europe, you know, and I'm not sure if it's happening in Australia or not. I think I've heard rumors that it is. We're not happy. So there's kind of, yeah, yeah. Well, yes. I'm not happy. And the people I hang out with are not happy. But unfortunately, here, as I assume there, there is a large contingent of people who are more conservative and who say, let's let's dial it back. You know, the the pendulum swings. Mm. And so, you know, so the pendulum has swung surprisingly in a, in a very global way, you know, so that in, in Europe and, uh, you know, and, and a lot of it, I, I do, uh, some of it, you can't attribute it all to Russian meddling, but that is one of the things that are, that's going on is the disinformation campaign coming out of Russia where people don't know what to believe and they're getting in if, and in the online chat forums and so on, Facebook, there are there's a lot of messaging covertly designed to heighten the divisions that exist to make people distrustful of others and to and to put news out there that's that's not accurate so that's a lot of what's going on but there there will always be a hunger among some at least minority of students who are looking for authentic career who mm -hmm. want to be helpful to others and mm -hmm. who feel like they feel drawn to be helpful more than they're drawn to making big bucks mm -hmm. and and so that market will always be there and will need people to serve it mm. that's kind of interesting I'll, I'll, I'll sort of give you a personal experience my son is coming towards the end of his psych degree and uh, he finishes it uh, kind of mid this year. And we were having a discussion um, actually last week. And as he looks back over his degree, uh, the outcomes are, um, I don't know where to go next. He's really lost yeah. because he feels that he's learned everything about diagnostics, but he has, has nothing to go in with and say, how can I help you? Yeah. to the clients. So his next uh, journey is a master's and he's looking at where to go, you know, to specialise right. yeah, specialized yeah. from that. But, yeah, I, I, um, my background's in counselling, so it's not in psychology, although um, we have quite lengthy discussions, though I have a good knowledge base. Yeah, I, I found that really interesting. But a little bit, oh, gee, that's a shame, mate, you know, that you've sort right. of been through this psych degree and... Um, your intention was to help out somebody. And, uh, yeah, so what do you think about that? 
Well, yeah, I think that happens to a lot of people. And uh, I went on for a PhD because at the time that I was at the place that he is, I mean, it's true, I, I wouldn't have been able to do anything with my uh, bachelor. Well, my bachelor wasn't all the way in psychology, actually. I just had a few courses. So I had to go on to something. And at that point, so I did go on to a master's. But for me at that time, the master's was just a stepping stone to get into a program where I could learn about therapy. Mm -hmm. Because at that time, there was no master's level therapy licensing. So it kind of had to go on to something else. That's changed here, and I guess it's also the case in Australia that there's master's level licensing or certification for doing yeah. psychotherapy. Yeah, that's right. Yeah so, yeah, so if there hadn't been that pressure on me to get a PhD, I probably never would have, and I would have had a very different career than, you know, than I have had as a result. Um, so for him, you know, uh, Hopefully, he can find something at the master's level that gives him more of that therapeutic training that he's looking for. Mm. And there, as here, I'm sure there are a lot of sort of private training programs that are expensive, though. Yeah, yeah. As you may know. <laughs> they tend to be they tend, let me train you in my approach. And it's only $2,000 a year or whatever, you know, maybe yeah. more. And so that's that's tough for a young person who's trying to start out. Mm, mm. But there are these other resources, and I hear from my listeners, I've got a lot of people who are in that position who are beginning therapists or they're in school, and they say, boy, I learned so much about therapy, about the different approaches to therapy, and uh, you know, from just listening to your interviews with all these different therapists, and I've learned about approaches that I didn't know about, and books that I wanted to read, and so on. So, mm. there's a lot of information out there, not just in my podcast, but I believe that I was the very first psychologist podcaster, okay. and uh, yeah. I don't know that for certain, but yeah. but podcasting got started in 2005, and that's when I started okay. to podcast, yeah. and so. Now there are five on iTunes. There are over five hundred thousand podcasts. Wow! And uh, not That's all of them are, you know, probably only a, <laughs> are still a handful will be about psychology. But there are a bunch out there now. Yeah, yeah. So, Some good ones. Yeah, with the students and graduates that I have, I recommend yeah. Shrink Wrap Radio. Uh, Thank you so yeah, much. Because of the diversity of. You know, the different, um, yeah, like you're saying, the different approaches, the perspectives. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah. That, that, uh, there's a couple of other things. I'm, I'm getting to shrink wrap radio. <laughs> I'm just leading up I'm to in no, I'm in no hurry. I've got time. <laughs> I've got time. We can just take as much time as you want. <laughs> oh, you should never say that to me. I'm a <laughs> So you have an interest in Jung and also dreams. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I had a long-standing interest in dreams. I suppose, you know, I did, when I was in my doctoral program, I did read, or maybe it was sooner than that, I can't remember, but I did read uh, Freud's The Interpretation of Dreams, which was his seminal book, and the one that really lays out an awful lot of his theory. And and he it was very readable because, you know, he almost won a Nobel Prize in literature. 
and um, because his writing was so good, so clear. And so that kind of maybe planted a seed there. But then later when I started working at Sonoma State University, one of my colleagues was a Jungian, not a Jungian analyst, but somebody who was very uh, kind of deep into Jung. He was actually the one who, who, who sort of hired me or suggested that I be hired. So he had a big influence on me, even though I never took any of his classes, but I did befriend a number of his, his students. And so I got a lot of it by osmosis through his students. And one of the things that he did was he was running what were called dream groups. I was very excited about the dream groups. I don't think there was an undergraduate program anywhere else in the country, let alone the world that was organizing undergraduate students into dream groups where part of their class time would involve sharing their dreams into small groups and giving each other feedback about the dreams and keeping dream journals. So I picked up that practice for myself and uh, then I began to teach a class similar to the one that he taught called Myth, Dream, and Symbols that I taught for many years. And you know, I discovered that it was a powerful practice, both in my own life, keeping the dream journal, and also for the students, because uh, I, I very much wanted to teach classes that had a strong experiential mm. component, both the intellectual, so there was assigned reading, etc., and homework, and some exams on the reading, but they had to do inner work. And they had to do dream work. And um, it was very gratifying, mm. very gratifying. And to me, it felt therapeutic. I felt like I was maybe doing better therapy by sitting back and just being a facilitator in these dream groups than in my actual therapy. Uh, I don't know. Maybe I may be denigrating myself too much. I'm raising myself up in one area and putting myself down at the Let's same time in another. Yeah. <laughs> so what sort of information, again, this is, you know, so for the guys that are listening, do you sort of capture from the dreams? I know it's, it's a topic that could go on for quite a bit, but generally sure. speaking, yeah. Well, I, see, I'm very interested, or and particularly was interested when I was doing my doctoral dissertation and so on, because again, it was the mid-60s, I, so I became very interested in altered states of consciousness. Mm. And of course, one of those altered states of consciousness is hypnosis, mm. which I got to be very interested in, and and dreams. And I think both as an both of those as an altered state of consciousness can be used as a tool for uh, self-understanding and um, and change and development. So from dreams, I think the dreams offer us a commentary on our emotional life and and parts of our emotional life that we're not always consciously processing. So sometimes it's very obvious in the dream, oh, this, you know, is about this thing that I'm thinking about all the time or that I'm upset about or concerned about. But sometimes the dreams also surface, and particularly if we work with the dream and uh, go deeper with it, it will surface things that maybe we're not consciously 
aware of. They'll make a strong connection. We'll go, kind of have an aha experience of, oh, yeah, aha, uh -huh. here's something I need to work with more mm. or understand at a deeper level. Mm. For example, when I look through my dream journal, some years back, and I looked through several years worth of the dream journal of my own personal entries, I there was a lot of fear in them, a lot of incidents of fear, and also a number in which I was being attacked by uh, black people, black, uh, black men. Uh, so what that really bought, brought to the forefront for me, I mean, I could have told you that I had some issues around that, but it really brought to the forefront is, wow, I'm scared. I got some fear, real fear going on here. And, um, and of course, it made sense for me because I grew up in, for part of my life, in a, a sort of a dangerous, mostly black neighborhood. Mm. Nothing ever happened to me. But there was always that fear, fear. Yeah. of crossing to the other side of the street to avoid something happening. And, you know, so I was always treading very lightly. Uh, so that that's a personal thing that sort of came out very strongly for me and others. And in the classes, that the student groups that I did, often there would be some early childhood sexual trauma mm. that would emerge, particularly for young women who uh, who either had repressed it or it just brought it up to the place where they could begin to talk about it. In, in, a, in a group where we had sworn to confidentiality. Yeah, yeah. With the repression, you know, with, with sexual abuse or whatever it is with a client, uh, and this is a question that uh, I am asked quite a bit from students with repression and using hypnosis to bring that to the surface and, and what you're saying is here, you know, having a look at your dreams and, and just kind of analysing them. When I say that word repression, what does that mean to you? Well, to me, repression, uh, you know, if I go to the technical psychoanalytic sense of it, it is uh, stuff <laughs> that's held down below consciousness. Mm. So... Uh, issue, you know, stuff, issues, uh, emotional issues uh, that threat that are threatening to the ego. They're threat threatening to awareness. Mm. Now, my belief is though that that's a permeable membrane, if you will, yeah, and that stuff can bubble up, and that in general, unless we're talking about psychosis or something pretty close to psychosis, uh, most people are st strong enough to, to let it up gradually uh, and have an, enough defenses, I think, that even in dream work, even in hypnosis, that they're not going to be overwhelmed by it, mm -hmm. that it'll come up maybe in little hints and they'll be able to, in that context, where hopefully there's a supportive and accepting person working with them, mm. that they're not going to be overwhelmed by this previously unconscious or semi-conscious mm. uh, 
issues. Mm. That's my sense of that. Does that fit for you? It, it does. Um, I consider that it's not necessarily repression. I like the idea of that membrane. Um, and mm-hmm. and also uh, the idea of letting the client just flow with it kind of organically, just let it come up in your yeah. own time, you know, and be very exactly. in a very safe kind of environment. Yes, But yes. I also uh, consider that the repression also sits in the body. You kind of hear from a client, look, I've got this gut instinct, you know, something's yeah. happened. Or, so, okay, sort of go with the gut, what's happening in your gut. So the body talks as well as... I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I share that belief and yeah. that that symptoms are often... Uh, the, the body often will give voice to psychological symptoms so that where the person is experiencing their pain, their, you know, because there has emerged a whole uh, line of therapy that could be referred to generically as body work. Mm. And, of course, it's, in some ways it all starts with Wilhelm Reich, the, uh, uh, one of the early people in Freud's psychoanalytic circle who – developed a whole theory that about it being in the body and then there's body work that's that's come out of that work bioenergetics and other kinds of uh, approaches that seek to release that whether it's through deep deep physical approaches like deep massage or pressure points and so on or just calling attention to listen to your body what what's your shoulder trying to say to you what's your neck trying to say to you right now and having people go really deeply with that and so yeah that's a very important component regardless of what therapeutic approach you utilize i think people have developed a sensitivity to that possibility and some utilize it more than others mm. And, yeah, and, I agree. and speaking of repression, there are other words around that cluster that uh, we tend to use. One is suppression. Mm. So the difference between repression and suppression is a kind of conscious decision at some point, maybe very early in life. I'm going to keep that down. I'm not going to talk about that. I don't want people to know about that. So, for example, when I was about 14 years of age, I found out that my mother had had an affair with a man who was Jewish and that he was my biological father. Mm. Well, I, at that age, I knew that millions of people had perished uh, in, the, in the Holocaust just for being as much a Jewish as I was, which was to me not at all other than finding out that I, you know, that I had this heritage. But when my mother told me that, I had this voice inside that said, I'm never going to tell anybody about this. Why would my, why should my children that I'm going to have someday, why should they suffer from that and their children and their children and so on? So that was kind of an act of suppression. Mm. Now, I never, I never really forgot about it. So it didn't go as far as repression. I always knew it was there. And eventually I came out just as I'm coming out to you now. Mm. And so there's there's repression, suppression, and then denial. Yeah. And so denial is kind of a version of repression too, right? Where somehow 
I can't give you the exact distinction between, yeah. I guess denial is a form of repression. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the explanation sits very comfortably with me. It is, um, it is something, uh, it's almost a little bit of fear that sometimes that I hear can this um, almost like volcano erupt with all this repressed memories. Um, and uh, I have yet to, for that, to, uh, you know, I've been in private practice well since about two thousand and four, and that has never happened. But it, but you're right. It is yeah. a fear that people have, and yeah. it's a fear that people associate with hypnosis. Yes, because yeah. they they have this this they've gotten this sort of popularized message of that they're going to be asleep and uh, that they're going to not know what's going on. And that you're going to be com completely in control, and that uh -huh. if you tell them to flap their arms like a chicken, that's uh -huh. what they're going to do. And but even scarier is the idea of well, it's something that they have not wanted to share, or maybe that they don't even know about is uh -huh. just going to erupt, as you say, like a volcano. Uh -huh. And um, it's it's very unlikely. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Very. That's sort of a, a bit of a lead into what you think about hypnosis, <laughs> you know. So yeah, well, yeah. So um, yes. What do you think? Well, I, 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 uh, when I first started clinical work, I sort of build myself around hypnosis because uh, I'd done my graduate study on that and I'd read extensively on it and I'd received some supervision around it, um, but it. For me, it wasn't the magical thing that I was expecting it to be in terms of weight loss or, or stopping smoking, those kinds of habit things. Um, now, there are people out there that build their whole thing around that, but I just I wasn't finding it to be as effective for that kind of work as, as I had hoped, you know. Uh, but I think for... Um, for doing, uh, for using it as an exploratory and a therapeutic tool for emotional issues, that is quite effective. Mm. And and uh, interestingly, a psychologist in my community hired me to train him in in hypnosis, hypnotherapy, and. He turned out to be genius at it. I mean, I was, he was taken off because he, I always struggled with doubt. And that's one of the things when you go for a PhD, I say, I went to this, to the Academy of Doubt because <laughs> <laughs> advanced training in psychology is always sort of slanted towards science yes, and yes. scientific proof. And uh, if it can't be proven, it's not true. And uh, and so psychologists are great at questioning things. And I've never been to a psychological uh, convention where people were presenting papers that the other psychologists in the audience didn't say, well, what about this? And did you do that? And so, you know, yeah. the, they're always questioning and poking it. There's no research out there that I've ever heard of that was totally bulletproof, yeah. that nobody could question and so I think coming through the Academy of Doubt, it affected me in a way that made it hard for me to believe fully in the power of hypnosis, that there was always this little doubt in the mm -hmm. back of my mind. And I think that the, 
I see hypnosis kind of as akin, in a way, to shamanism, mm. where you wrote a paper where, on that. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I've I've yeah. talked about that and written about that, and yeah. inter- did a lot of interviews where I kind of probe around those issues, yeah. and 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 so I look at shamanism as. Um, as at the roots of psychotherapy in a way that it, in the past was not really acknowledged, you know, because mm. psychology was all, both psychology and psychiatry and allied fields were always trying to establish themselves with a scientific basis. Uh, but if we look at the roots of healing, we have to acknowledge that healing involves a lot around expectation, hope, um, empowering uh, the, the healer, empowering the healer as having some kind of a power to, to make something happen inside us. Uh, when we go see the doctor, and the doctor has a white lab coat, and he's got a stethoscope, mm. and for many of us, who've been schooled in the Western tradition, the healing's already begun. That, there's yes. a kind of, there, there's a, um, uh, what do you call it, the, the effect of, I'm blocking on the um, word placebo? that we call it. Uh, sort of yeah, thank you, the, yeah. the placebo effect. So in the, in the Western scientific tradition, the placebo effect is a bad thing. Mm. We're trying to guard against the placebo effect, to rule that out. But in the healing tradition, I think the placebo effect is great stuff mm, mm, yeah. <laughs> because what we're doing is recruiting the person's capacity for self-healing, self-change, that if their, if their whole belief system gets recruited and their whole expectation system gets recruited, magical things can happen, mm. you know, that we don't even fully understand. So, so uh, yeah. So I see, I see a large dose of placebo effect in hypnosis, and um, and I think that's to the good. I don't put that down as a bad thing. I think it's part of the essence. Mm. It it is whatever works works, isn't it? As long as it's in a safe environment where the client is really accepted for who they are and and no judgments. Yeah. Whatever works, works. I always think when a client comes in. But if you want to sort of talk about closed-eyed trance state, you could work with a client, say, 15 minutes, and the work would be absolutely brilliant. You know, there would be insights and this aha moment where the client can, um, you know, walk away feeling pretty good with themselves. Yeah. The My perspective is um, the clinical hypnotherapist sets up the environment for change. So mm-hmm. and part of that is, you know, using that trance state, you know, making that yeah. accessible um, to the client. Uh, so what do you think about that? Well, I think they, I think it's, they come in already somewhat mm. in a trance, if you will. Yes. Yeah. Because, because they've come to you knowing that that's what they're signing up for yeah. and expecting that and have already attributed powers to that approach. Mm. And so the pump is already primed a bit. And then anything that you can do that helps to substantiate that and deepen it, you know, is mm. Mm. 
That's, I think that's how it goes. Mm. So it gets back to the client being their own healer. Yeah, I think mm. so. Definitely. I mean, do you have healing powers? Uh, no, not that, that magical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Right. It's really, it's got to be them. That's the bottom line. Yeah. But, but what you can do is, is to recruit, to, to recruit and inspire that mm. self-healing. Mm. That, that's what I think. Yeah. And you may be doing some teaching in the process. You know, you yeah. may be teaching some life skills. Uh, you may be offering some suggestions that uh, about change. You know, I don't know about your approach uh, mm-hmm. in that regard, but you may be giving practical advice as well as helping them explore their inner world. And they're in a receptive state because they're relaxed and they you know, they they have come to trust you. Mm. Yeah. 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 So. yeah. We kind of, um, you know, kind of look at things like listening to the language, you know, what, what does that mean to them and, and teasing sure. that out and, and then using sure. that in the, the suggestion work and, you know, sort of skills that go along with um, hypnotherapy. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I don't discount that, there may be dimensions that that we're not able to document that we don't fully understand. Yeah. That there may be some kind of a, a psychic connection, if you will. Yeah. You know, there've been. Uh, I I don't go way out on that limb, but I'm open to some of it. To shrink rap radio. So you've seven hundred episodes. Wow. That's, I think that's I've done counting, three. That's, <laughs> <laughs> Well, the journey of a thousand miles, yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, that's counting in another podcast series that I had for a few years called Wise Counsel mm. Podcast. Mm. So I did uh, maybe about 125 interviews there. So that's part yeah. of the 700. And I believe that we can access that now too, can't we? The wise yeah, counsel, if you, yeah, if you go to my website. Uh, about Dr. Dave, and you go down, there's a tab that says about Dr. Dave, and you go down about three or four paragraphs, there's a link there that you can click on. Oh, also, actually, on the homepage, there's a little picture, there's a little banner ad that says uh, uh, Wise Counsel Podcast. You oh, click okay. on that. Because I, have I, to I be couldn't a little... access it through iTunes. I... No, you no, can't. Yeah. can't. Yeah. Uh, I have to be a little subterranean because I don't own that content okay. uh, because I was hired to do those interviews. And so somebody else owns the content and uh, he wants to make money off of it. And so I tried to negotiate a way to get access and the negotiations fell through. But then he's he's actually, for a while it wasn't anywhere. And then I noticed he's, it's at this place. I don't want to draw too much attention sure, to it, sure. but the link is there. You can go there, and there are about 125 really some of the uh, best people, uh, that I, some real seminal founders uh, mm. uh, that I got to interview in that series, and they paid to have every one of those interviews uh, transcribed. So there's a transcript for each one of those. And, and on Shrinkwrap Radio, about a third of them have been transcribed by listeners. Mm. 
volunteers who are not paid and uh yeah. but that's a real tribute to their valuing of it yes so, yeah yeah yeah. Oh. yeah so this week i did number 594 i think yeah so i was up to the perspective said, on legalizing of cannabis that's yes that was, that yeah. was the one just before yeah, yeah. yep <laughs> that was interesting Oh, good. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't sure how people would take yeah. to that, but it is something that's, uh, you know, uh, particularly with medical marijuana, there's uh, a lot of people are testifying that it's helped them with one ailment or another. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and, and, you know, I said I had this interest in, in this interest in altered states of consciousness. And so that's another another route and can be uh, our uh, psychedelic drugs and i see cannabis yeah. as as one of the uh one of the psychedelic drugs out there mm, mm. yeah i'm uh, i'm in two minds uh you you kind of did mention there about um the maturing brain you know the uh, teenage kids uh, yeah uh, not for kids i would say yeah, not for kids yeah uh, i yeah. um yeah, that was my question mark, you know, um, privately. I was sort of thinking, oh, you know, but... Um, well, I, sm I smoked a fair amount when I was in graduate school. Yeah. So so I would have been at that point, you know, probably 24, 25, 26, 27, 28 years old. Yeah. In that, and and uh, the psychedelics really made me struggle with my motivation. It's so wonderful that I wonder that I hung in. Because I would get just feel like, oh, this, you know, I should just drop out and ride around the country on a motorcycle and sing folk songs to children. <laughs> Too much of a good time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I'm glad that I was able to hang in there. But I would, you know, fear would come up. Oh, I can't, I can't graduate. You know, I can't finish my PhD. I'm yeah. not smart enough. Blah blah blah. Well, so I really think that. It's not for people who are who don't have a fairly strong ego. You know, at that point, I had if I were had been in high school, forget about it. I don't yeah. know how I would have. Mm. I mean, you don't know without knowing, without having experienced it. But I was glad that I had enough of a foundation as I did by the time I was in graduate school, and even then, it was a, kind of challenging. Yeah. But but by what I know now, I would say that we were overdosing on marijuana back then, that we didn't understand enough about it. And also it wasn't coming from controlled sources. And now you can get through, uh, through uh, legal dispensaries, you can get marijuana with precisely majored amounts of THC, if that's the kind you're getting. And so uh, you can get a much lower dose. Mm a much more controlled kind of experience where you're not likely to go into all that sort of self-questioning and despair yeah, as I yeah. experienced way back when. Yeah, and, and the gentleman, I, I can't recall his name, that you were interviewing, he kind Ooh, of, ah. mentioned, Ooh, ah, ah. He yeah, kind of Ooh, mentioned that they were going to um, change the marijuana plant for specific things. So it could be for yeah. anxiety and you know and depression so how amazing is that yeah it is amazing yeah 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 okay so well so 
how far oh before no i have to talk about this <laughs> it's about um this is zodiac speaking um oh yes yeah, yeah i was I... reading wow i was reading about um zodiac speaking the serial killer and yeah. uh it sent chills up my spine because i hadn't heard about you know that that's from america and i hadn't heard about um, yeah. the zodiac killer and um yeah yeah well, they made a major. Uh, they made a couple of major movies, uh, Hollywood movies, about the case. But this was in the. Uh, I think it was in the early '70s that it all happened. Around, around '70, 70, '71, maybe '69. I'm not sure. But there were a series of killings in Northern California, here where I live, uh, and the fellow called himself the Zodiac. And so that's how he got that name. Mm. And in fact, uh, and he was sending letters to the police and later to the newspapers saying that he was going to kill more. And he was taunting, sending these taunting letters mm. uh, and threatening to uh, blow up a school bus and to shoot the kiddies as they came out of the school bus and so on. So there was a way in which I felt he was a proto-terrorist. You know, the beginning of uh, now, he looks like small potatoes based on what's happening in the world today. But at the time, people were terrified because he was uh, writing these letters and bragging. And uh, so I was approached by the person who turned out to be my co-author I, at the time, I was the chair of the psychology, psychology department at Sonoma State University. And so I got this email from somebody saying, uh, who I didn't know, saying, I wonder if you'd be interested in looking at some letters from a serial killer and giving me a, a read on them, you know, what, are, what your impressions are. So I didn't know who this guy was, but I said, well, if you send me some sample letters, I'll noodle around with them and see see what comes up. And later, I thought, after giving him that reply, I thought, well, what if this is the serial killer? And he just wants you know, to know my impressions. <laughs> uh, but at any rate, the guy sent me the letters, and I noodled around with them, and I sent them back to him. And he got so excited by what I wrote that he said, hey, you know, I'm writing a book about this case and and the killer, you're going to recognize who it is eventually when you read all the letters. But if I send you the whole set of letters, um, I'd be interested in reorganizing my book around your analyses and weaving those into the book. And so that was the agreement that we made. And... Um, so I noodled around with each of those letters and kind of was trying to profile him, develop a psychological profile. And I thought that, wow, I might get pilloried by my peers when uh, this thing came out because I came to a rather unorthodox conclusion that maybe he suffered from uh, from what at the time was called multiple uh, multiple personality and later dissociative ident identity disorder because I thought I saw some changes in the personality as I went through the letters and that's what led me in that direction. And of course I have no idea whether or not that was true or not. But 
the book was well received by everybody that I ever heard from, and uh, uh, and lots of people contacted me. Or a number of people saying, "Oh, I know who the Zodiac is," because the Zodiac was never captured, never. Never with any certainty identified, although there was another book that kind of scooped ours that came out right about the same time where the guy claimed to identify the Zodiac. My co-author, who, was, who had long worked in the area of true crime, d- didn't buy that. He, he didn't think that guy was right. What did that do to you while you were investigating it? The information that you were reading, did you put that anywhere or it didn't sort of affect you in any way? Well, I worried about that. You know, I worried, you know, it did cross my mind that, wow, if this guy really is out there and he was killing in this area, of course, a lot of time had passed. Mm. But he hadn't been heard from and, uh well, let's see, the book was in 2006, I think, if I recall correctly. So, you know, there was some period of years that had passed and he hadn't been heard of. So so I wasn't totally scared, but it did cross my mind. God, I'm, I'm talking about his mama and calling him names and, you know, yeah. giving him these diagnoses and all. He could get really ticked off at me and come and hunt me out. So that did cross my mind, and I did have one bad, one nightmare. I thought I might be plagued by nightmares, but I had one nightmare in which somebody just grabbed me from behind, just like, it was like, just, huh? and and I woke up with a start, you know, that was like, I haven't had too many nightmares, like, well, I've never had a nightmare like that, and that just, whoo. And I think I, I definitely linked it to this, yeah. these letters I've been reading and all. Because I was trying to put myself in his head mm. and imagine, you know, what would be going on if I were him and, and to, to try to come from that place. And I was sort of tr- trying to draw on my studies of both psychoanalytic and Jungian thought to do that. Mm. Uh, but fortunately, nothing bad happened. Mm. And... Um, and I think I did a reasonably good, I did at least a good enough job that my co-author kept urging me, yeah, this is great stuff, this is great stuff, yeah, I know people in the FBI, you could be a profiler. I think in wow. some ways he was just, he was feeding me honey to keep me going. <laughs> <laughs> but he definitely got my ego engaged. And I, and I felt like I was an, on an exciting chase. And uh, I felt like, God, if this were fresher material, we would be able to nail him. Yeah. And as I say, then later we heard, we got letters from people saying, oh, I know who this is. It's my uncle. It's my father. It's the, it's my neighbor and so on. And we got sort of burnt out on did, uh, that kind of Dare I stuff. ask, um, did you ever have a gut feeling? Well, I was going on gut feeling all along, I okay. thought. I mean, that's, you know, I was trying to use my gut feeling to figure this stuff out. Both head and head yeah. and gut. Yeah. Uh, there was somebody who who uh, who really had me going. Who said, you know, that he had identified the person, that it was a prominent person, prominent business person in San Francisco, and this guy had marshaled all of the evidence by, you know, reading newspapers and scouring the internet, internet and so on, 
and he developed a really convincing case. Well, there's a, a, a TV magazine show, if you will, that probably wasn't in Australia. It was called 2020. And uh, they did an investigation. They, they took three, three suspects who people had built cases around this guy was one of them, the one that this guy had been feeding me information about. And I was like, I was tempted to go down to San Francisco and follow this guy and maybe see him in a barber shop and get the hair clippings or get a, a cup that he had used in yeah. Starbucks or something. Fortunately, there was some kind of sanity <laughs> yeah. that prevailed so that I didn't do that. Um, but, uh, at any rate, 2020 uh, submitted DNA evidence that they reasoned that the Zodiac had sent these letters to the press and to the police departments. So there were some envelopes that these letters were sent out with that presumably he had licked. Okay. Now, we don't know. Maybe he was smart enough to use a sponge or something, but the assumption was that he had licked them. So they used that as a DNA test case, and uh, and none of the major suspects of which he was one panned out DNA-wise. Mm. Mm. Wow, what an interesting journey. That <laughs> so was. that, yeah, that, that yeah. was a, an interesting journey and now now i'm burned out on I've, I've tried to be nice and accepting to people who write to me and say they know who the zodiac is but i i have to tell them look i have no connections to the police the mm -hmm. police have closed the case and there's no way really that i can help you mm -hmm. so yeah. i refer them to there's an online discussion group that they're still discussing the case wow. all these many years they have a very active website uh, I think it's serialkiller.com, if anybody's curious. Mm. I, I didn't make much money off of this. I, I, the guy insisted that I get a small share just so I couldn't come and, and sue him. So I think I got like 5% or 10% after a lot of other expenses were paid. So, you know, I probably made three or $400. Yeah. So I'm not, I'm not trying to sell books because it only gives me pennies. But yeah. uh, if anybody's interested, you can find find used copies probably on the internet. It's out of print, but uh, on Amazon there are always some used copies out there. Yeah. Ah, oh, shame it's out of print. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> oh well, here's an exciting thing. <laughs> HBO optioned it, and they were going to make a series. And uh, wow. we would have come into some real money and some real kind of fame, I suppose. Uh, so they had the option to make a series out of it. And then this movie came out, a rather major movie with uh, David Fincher was the director. Mm -hmm. And uh, some big stars were in it. And so HBO didn't exercise the option oh. because they made this movie and they figured, well, people won't be that interested in a, in a TV series. Mm. Darn. Oh, yes, so close. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. Yeah. <laughs> There's a couple, a couple of more things that um, yeah. to talk about is um, your hobbies. What is 
brain train hopping. Freight train oh, hopping. Oh, freight train hopping. Okay. Yeah. Did I make a typo on my website? Oh, I, hope I not. don't know. That's probably my writing. I can't <laughs> understand it. Yeah. Yeah. There was a brief period as an undergraduate where uh, a roguish friend of mine, we hopped on some freight trains and had some adventures. <laughs> uh, you know, you're not supposed to do that. And uh, they, one of the times we did it, we, I was just talking to him the other day. He's actually a guy who I've had on my show a few times. We've been friends for a long, long time. And um, <clears throat> when we were undergraduates, uh, we did hop a freight train out of, out of Philadelphia where we were in school at the University of Pennsylvania. And it uh, turned out that it was going to Baltimore and as it was pulling into, it started to pull into one station, and we saw another train, take, and we were huddled up on top of this boxcar, wow. mm. and I just reviewed with him. I said, was, there, was that an electric train with a high-power thing up above our heads? And he said, yeah. And um, so as one train was slowing down and the other one was taking off beside us we leapt from the one train to the other i mean i'm shocked to say that that i ever did anything like that and it was the dead of winter it was freezing cold and so we leapt from the one train to the top of the other and then as that train was taking off the spotlight swung back from the cab, from the engine cab, right on us. Oh. Yeah. Oh, oops. <laughs> and we, we scrambled down the ladder. The train was already moving, but fortunately it hadn't gathered enough speed that we couldn't jump off, and we jumped off, and we heard these men shouting behind us. They were chasing us, I'm sure with clubs. And... We dashed out onto the, uh, you know, out of the freight yard into the streets of Baltimore and uh, at night, at midnight, and hid behind a trash dumpster. And fortunately, they didn't find oh. us. Mm. Uh, but yeah, so I've had some adventures <laughs> yes. along the way. That's one of them. <laughs> The other thing, which is really um, Australian, is a didgeridoo. Uh, so you're a bit of a musician. Um, so it's guitar and uh, out comes the didgeridoo. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. I'm not very good, but... <laughs> wow. <laughs> I did go through I did go through a didgeridoo period and I've still got it and I went to a didgeridoo camp it, it was like a either it was 5 days or it was a weekend and an Australian guy was there who was uh, um, um, I'm trying to he was mixed blood is yeah. the I guess the thing I'm trying looking for and I interviewed him on one of the podcasts. His name is Jeremy Donovan. Oh, okay. And so there's a podcast with him. He, he was really good. Yeah, so 
<laughs> I'm still working on the circular breathing. I don't have it, it down all that well. Is it in well. the throat? Is the breathing coming up sort of from the throat? Is it? Well, the way it works is, and and I think the Aborig Aboriginal Australians, I'm tempted to say they have an advantage physiologically, but I, I realize that's not true because I've seen I've seen white people who don't have, I mean, the aboriginals have really wide nostrils. And so I've told myself, oh, no wonder they can get that air in. But there are white people that can do it quite well as well. Uh, the trick is you're inhaling, you're taking a little sniffs periodically ah. to get some air into your lung while your cheeks are puffed out and compressing the air out so that it's unbroken it sounds unbroken mm. uh, and it takes a little practice to get it to where you just you don't hear the breath you don't hear uh, the the break in it and it's just a continuous drone mm. Mm. i i'm not 100 percent sure if what i'm about to say is correct but i think i was reading that females are not able to use the didgeridoo now i don't know oh no yeah. No, that's not true. Isn't it? Well, maybe traditionally. For, for cultural reasons, yeah. Yeah, for cultural yeah. reasons, that that is probably true. Yeah. I, I don't know for sure either. But if you go on YouTube and you look at people playing the didgeridoo, I've seen some incredible wo women ah, players. Ah. I wonder if they're original ladies or not. <laughs> no, no. No, they're not. not, yeah. not the, there's, one, there's one really cool one where this guy and this girl, and they both have the didgeridoo, and they've got a stand that they put it on. And, man, do they ever go to town, the yeah. two of them, yeah. putting in the animal sounds, just all kinds of – there are all kinds of ways that you can fancify it, if you yeah. will. Yeah, yeah. Oh, cool stuff. We're sort of coming towards the end of the podcast. Okay. And, and there is always a question I ask, and that is, if you went back to the 15-year-old self and knowing what you know now, what would you tell that young boy? Well, I would tell him to not be so worried and anxious <laughs> because <laughs> I was just always, I struggled with self-confidence and I struggled with... Um, you know, just wondering if I was going to make it, you know, and, and find a place in the world for myself. And so here I am now, you know, with all these degrees and papers written and at least one book, you know, that I sort of helped to write and uh, a sixth grandchild on the way wow. four four adult children now going to have six grandchildren so here I am sort of at the apex of a pyramid of feeling like a, you know, like a founder of a, of a line. And um, so I would want my 15-year-old to relax and to know that. Mm. You know, I would say to him, don't worry, you're going to make it. 15-year-old, mm. mm. look at me now. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> look at us now. Look at us now. <laughs> Yeah, look yeah. at us now. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much um, for spending the well, time thank with you. me. And well, I love talking about, about myself, so, you know. <laughs> well, you've got a wonderful history to do that. So, yeah, yeah it's you. a history that teaches some people some stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, so. you know, on my podcast, I do so much listening, so it's good to uh, <laughs> yeah. to, be, to have that turned around. <laughs> so good luck with your own podcast. Stick at it.
I will. I will. I think I've okay. found a, an appreciation, you know, yeah. talking to people and listening to stories, which I love. Yeah. 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 Great. So thank you okay. so much for being part of Mind Care Podcast. You're so welcome. If you'd like more information, then go to the Mind Care Podcast website. We'll also tell you about our next guest.